the Buddha felt that these yoga practices he, were, he was doing um, was very beneficial, but somehow they were distractions to a more particular project, which is how to confront human suffering. How to actually confront human suffering. And I think anybody who engages in deep inner work has to come to terms, not only with suffering, but the fear of actually confronting one's life. The fear of being in the wilderness, of not knowing how to orient a life. You're going to have to confront the fear of losing your mind, the fear of losing the abilities you have in your body that you take for granted, because all of us, our bodies change. You notice that you're turning into your mom? <laughs> The fear of meeting anxiety that maybe you've been distracting yourself from for a really long time. Fear of death. And another fear that I think doesn't get talked about very much is the fear of losing desire. Um, this was the story of Miles Davis. One day, Miles Davis woke up and there was no more music. He didn't have, this is how he describes it. He woke up one day and he had no more music. I think a lot of us fear this. Maybe a spin-off of that is like the fear of being redundant. But the fear of not having that vitality anymore. Um, fear of losing what you've gained. And another one that I find really interesting is the fear of getting what you love. Like, remember when you really wanted someone to love you and then they did? It's pretty scary. I mean, it's easy to manage wanting someone to love you. But sometimes it's hard to manage wanting someone to love you and having that become the momentum of how you move through the world. And then someone does love you. And then <laughs> there's all this habit of being an unlovable person that then one has to actually confront. So there are helpful fears and unhelpful fears. Um, I grew up in Toronto. I lived almost my entire life between Kensington Market and Sororan. And I'm really comfortable walking in alleys. Totally comfortable. It's actually my preferred route of traveling in the city. You can have your Don Valley Parkway. Um, but now I live on a small island that has one stop sign, no street lights. And so when the sun goes down, it's really dark. And when I grew up in the city, I never thought much about spirits or, you know, gods and demons. So now I live in the forest and it's really dark 
And if you've never believed in spirits, you should come in the forest when it's really, really dark. And I'm really scared of the dark. So I've been doing this practice now for almost two years where I'm starting to get further and further away from my house in the dark. So I'll start by like walking out into the forest where I can still see the lights. And now slowly I'm getting further and further away. And the energy of being in the forest is really different on the full moon because the shadows are really creepy. <laughs> and the new moon, and it changes throughout the month. So that's, I think, a helpful fear and an unhelpful fear. Some, fear, some of the fear is helpful to be scared of the dark, and some of it I find extremely unhelpful. <coughs> a few years ago, uh, many people in this room were with me. Uh, we were on retreat, and uh, somebody on the retreat fainted. And when you're really, really still, and your senses are open, and someone faints, the sound of the thump on the ground is really frightening. And then the next year, same time of the day, different person fainted. And then, you're not going to believe this, three years in a row. This is true, right? Three years in a row, at the same sit, same time of the day, somebody fainted. And it caused so much uh, stress for me, this sound, that there was a few months where I couldn't sit in a room with other people because I was so scared someone was going to faint. And I also couldn't be at a table where other people were eating because if anyone made a quick move, I thought for sure they were going to faint. I've had times on retreat where I was so scared, I couldn't go from sitting to walking meditation. My heart rate was like, my eyes were like this. So I know something about working with, with fear. This year, our family lived uh, in Greece for a while and um, also, we were on an island. Somebody told me that once you live on an island, you start only wanting to go to other islands. So anyways, we were on this tiny island, really far away from people near Turkey in Greece. And um, um, we were having a stressful time with uh, my four-year-old. Um, he was not communicating really that well, and my wife was kind of upset about it, and some, something was off with him. And our year-old son also was just learning how to walk. And walking around in rural Greece, no handrails, no like on the edge of cliffs. My wife was kind of stressed every day. Um, anyways, one day I took my four-year-old into town and uh, we rented this minivan and I didn't put the seatbelt right on the minivan. And um, so he was in his car seat and I was driving. Then I turned the corner, next corner, next corner. And then I look in the rear view mirror and he wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> I 
It sounds funny, it's not funny. So I hit the brakes and I jumped out of the car and his car seat had just tipped over like this. But when he fell over, he just sat there like this. Yeah. And really quickly, it occurred to me that one of the things that had been happening for our son was he just would freeze and wouldn't be able to communicate. And so I thought, is he having a seizure? You know, how come he's not communicating? And it was right after that that it clicked for me all, as I was driving home. We had been think, wondering if he had autism. And right after I realized, oh, this is it. I'm going to have to come home and tell my wife about what just happened and tell her, you know, I think that our wondering if maybe our son has autism might actually be accurate. And so then I have a lot of anxiety. Because so I was like, my wife's already having such a stressful vacation. She's trying to manage a one-year-old who's like trying to run a marathon on boulders with, do you know how they build fences in Greece with like rebar? And like our kids don't have shots or whatever. And like, so she was stressed. And I, so then I was anxious and I was interested in this mix of fear, my own fear too about my son, but my inability to feel my fear because I was anxious and scared about what my wife would say, you see. So this is what I want to unpack together, is this mix of fear, anxiety, and how it gets stuck in the body. And the reason why I'm giving you so many examples, because you might think, oh, let's just get on with the text, is that I think a lot of people who are spiritual practitioners have a blind spot around fear and think that they need to be more fearless. They need to be more confident, more fearless. But sometimes the scariest things, like something happening to a child or death or illness, can be what wake us up and make us more fearless. Because we can fully feel what fear, like, fear feels like. And this includes anxiety. The Buddha didn't have a term for anxiety. He called it dread. A lot of people say, I feel anxiety. I feel anxious. Most people, when they go to get still, are interrupted in their movement towards stillness by what they call the feelings of anxiety. It's amazing how many of us don't realize that anxiety is our default mental state. Nervousness. But from a meditator's perspective, anxiety is not a feeling. Anxiety is what happens when we've restricted our emotions. Anxiety is not an emotion. It's what happens when we're defending against 
our emotions. They're not flowing. We're preventing them from moving. And the first way this appears is as a symptom of nervous behavior, which is more what we do when we're in it. We ruminate, we obsess, we develop compulsive rituals. And also, nervous behavior is about what we don't do. Avoidance, uh, restriction of experience, or what we allow ourselves to feel, retreat from the world, or making a lot of rules about how we should be and how others should be. And you'll also recognize someone who's anxious from an attitude that's self-undermining, a cyclical, and a language that has a lot of futility and rumination in it. People who are anxious love rumination. Rumination is their best friend. People who have high anxiety tend to uh, be avoidant because when you have a lot of anxiety that's chronic, you overestimate risk. And so because you overestimate how risky a situation is, you'll rather avoid it and stay home than go to the event. And this all shows up in our body. Uh, frozen jaw. Do you know that one? Canker sores. Restricted breathing. Frozen diaphragm. It's really common. Uh, tension in the occiput and the neck. I could go through a whole list. You probably know most of them. Um, but the point is, is that this rigidity that starts to occur in your muscles, in your fascia, in your posture, when you're anxious over a long period of time, starts to make people feel that they're trapped in their bodies. And I think this is where anxiety and fear turn into suffering is when something becomes chronic for a long period of time, you start to feel trapped in your body. So what we're going to explore is how do we work with this? How do we work with the fear and anxiety that shows up in our bodies and in our hearts and also interpersonal fear? I'm really interested how a lot of my friends who are performers are really scared of people. And they've used performance as a coping mechanism to be able to engage with people. But actually deep down, they're quite scared of having an interaction with somebody. And I think many of us have known uh, celebrities, for example, who are uh, really so shy, they're almost fragile even though they can get up on a stage and sing or act or whatever to thousands of people. So,
Janusoni asks the Buddha, when you went into the forest, when you went into the jungle, wasn't it scary? Weren't you filled with fear and anxiety? And the Buddha says, um, when I was an unenlightened bodhisattva, I went into the forest and it was hard to endure. And I considered, if you go into the forest, so here's the first teaching. If you go into the forest, unpurified in bodily contact, conduct, then owing to unpurified bodily conduct, you will evoke unwholesome fear and dread. Now that might sound a little puritanical to you, but what he's saying is this. If in your past, you've been using your body in ways that are unethical, that hurt the dignity of other people or have caused harm to the dignity of your own body, then when you go meditate in the middle of the forest all by yourself, that will create anxiety. Isn't that interesting? Most of the time we think meditation is like, I'm gonna meditate and I'm gonna get into all these great realms. In Buddhist psychology, there's a very different perspective of meditating. When you meditate, you're going to confront your karma. When you sit down, you're going to sit down with how things are. And that's why most people love meditating. And then as soon as they actually see how things are, they move on to CrossFit or whatever, <laughs> or whatever their thing is, you know. Yeah, forget meditating, I'm going paleo, you know. Now this word unwholesome is important to underline. Unwholesome, again at first, it sounds a little Victorian, wholesome, unwholesome. Unwholesome means without clinging. Wholesome means with, or sorry, unwholesome means with clinging. Unwholesome means without clinging. But I like the word wholesome because it's a sense of the whole, not just me in here the sense of the whole. So when you have a body where the, the, the sensibility of one's body includes the whole, you can sit in the forest and meditate and get concentrated. When you're so concerned about your own body and you've probably done some unskillful things with your body, you will feel that in your meditative practice. Then he keeps going. So we're in the last paragraph of the first page. Whenever recluses or Brahmins, unpurified in verbal conduct, unpurified in mental conduct, unpurified in livelihood. So these are really interesting categories. In the way that you speak, in the way you move your body, in the way you work, in the kind of work you do, so for example, are you exploiting people? What kind of damage does your corporation cause? You know, Is your attitude in the work you do one of service or one of greed? Uh -huh. So if you examine your livelihood, if your livelihood is not wholesome, then when you go sit, there will be anxiety. 
It's really interesting, isn't it? Really interesting. He's, he's, he's listing here some of the factors for anxiety, and guess what? They're not all inside you. They're through your actions, through your actions. The Buddha says, I'm purified in livelihood. I, I have a livelihood where I do good for other people and so on. And so that one wasn't a big deal. I'm purified in verbal conduct. So that doesn't cause me anxiety. And then a big list. If somebody is full of lust, it's hard to concentrate and anxiety will show up. And a lot of uh, modern people are not that into this teaching because they're like, lust, that's the best mental state. <laughs> but actually, if you're a meditator, one of the things you know about lust is when you sit and you feel lust, you see that it's a mental and physiological state that owns you. It's a compulsion. It's not the same as passion. Passion, yes. Right? Creativity, passion, Italy, yes. <laughs> okay? but, but lust has claws in it. Has claws in it. It doesn't let us see and feel the whole. And then I'll go quickly through this list. Is the mind full of hate? Is there, are there intentions of hate or loving kindness? Sloth and torpor or vitality? Restlessness, is there restlessness? There's a lot of restlessness. If that's something you bring with you to meditation, then that's gonna be what you need to work with in meditation and you will feel some fear and anxiety around that. Self-praise. Disparagement of others, alarm, gain honor and renown. That one's kind of obvious. So, some of you know that I was just uh, teaching at a conference on the use of uh, psychedelic uh, drugs and plant medicine and its relationship with uh, a Buddhist path. And one of the things that comes up a lot when people have spiritual experiences through the use of mushrooms or peyote or whatever is inflation, right? They have big experiences and then the ego comes in and identifies with those experiences. And it's very common that people then experience a sense of being inflated of grandiosity that they just had this experience. And that's why you probably hear a lot of stories, and I told you one early about Joshu's ankle, where when someone has big experiences, the teachers will downplay it. That's part of the Buddhist tradition, is when someone has big shifts, the teacher will then say, go wash your dishes. Go change a diaper. How are things with your mom? <laughs> so I'm going to cover one more paragraph and then we'll have a break. 
The Buddha then says, I considered. There are specially auspicious nights of the 14th, the 15th, and the 8th of the fortnight. Now, what if on these nights I were to dwell in such awe-inspiring, horrific abodes like orchard shrines, woodland shrines, and tree shrines? Perhaps I might encounter fear and dread. And later, on such an auspicious night as the 14th, 15th, and 8th of the fortnight, I dwelled in these horrifying abodes like orchard shrines. These are shrines to the dead, right? So through the forests in these different groves, there would be shrines to the dead. And while I dwelt there, a wild animal will come up to me or a peacock would knock off a branch or the wind would rustle the leaves. And I thought, what now if this is the fear and dread coming? Why... Why do I dwell always expecting fear and dread? What if I subdue that fear and dread while keeping the same posture I am in when it comes upon me? Okay, so what he's saying are there are times of the month where there can be more intense fear and more intense dread. So if you live in a forest, one of them can be, these are the the name, the full moon, the quarter moon, and the new moon. And in those times, we can be more sensitive and more fragile. But what if immediately, when I started to sense fear and anxiety, I didn't change my posture? And I started to treat my posture as the place of practice. Does this make sense? So it's like, okay, fear is arising. Now I'm going to use whatever posture I'm in, riding a bicycle, to experience this anxiety. I'm going to turn towards it. I'm going to allow it in. I think what the Buddha is saying here is that some of the anxiety that we feel also is because of what's happening in the cosmos, not in a metaphysical way, but in a physical way, in a material way, the way the moon affects the tide in our bodies, men and women, and everything in between, and everything outside of that. Because um, anxiety doesn't just come, you didn't just make it, it's not your fault. So many conditions create anxiety. But the most important teaching here is that, and as the anxiety starts to arise, we can name it, know it, and not change our posture. That alarm going off is like the anxiety alarm. Someone here just got anxiety? So now we'll all support them. Oh, someone else just got an anxiety attack. So the point, the point here is that anxiety isn't an emotion. It's an alarm bell. It's the alarm bell. It's the symptom. It's a symptom of something else. And we don't want to just shut the alarm bell off. Right? 
we don't want to just turn the alarm bell off. We want to be able to use the symptom of anxiety to find out what's really going on. What's really going on? What's really going on? So thank you. <laughs>